This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi. My administration is issuing new federal guidelines that will allow governors to take a phased and deliberate approach to reopening their individual states. That will allow the governors to do that. Bit of a change in tone this week from U.S. President Donald Trump. Uh, That was him talking yesterday about what the road to recovery could potentially look like. Let's kind of sum up how the week has gone with Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini, who joins us now. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. That was very different from what we heard earlier in the week, wasn't it? It was very different. The president, uh, you know, admitting that governors will be in charge. He did it a couple of times say that they would allow states to do certain things like stay closed if they have outbreaks, despite the fact that he is ceding control to the governors. But he's also creating a bit of mixed messaging here in the process and style that the country is going to reopen, leaving it up to governors, but also therefore taking no responsibility if something happens to go wrong down the road. Right. Okay. so what does this recovery plan kind of look like? Well, it's going to be a phased approach, and each state is going to have to meet a certain amount of recommended criteria in order to move through each phase, uh, you know, from uh, practicing social distancing and having schools closed to allowing schools to open to life, essentially returning to normal. But that is likely many, many months down the road. But in order to get through each of these phases, states are going to have to uh, report less uh, COVID cases over a 14-day period. Hospitals will have to be operating at pre-crisis levels. And if they're not kind of meeting that criteria, they can't move through each phase but it's also worth noting these are just guidelines and recommendations there's no oversight as to how this is actually going to work and play out state by state i see okay so every state is kind of on its own for that Yeah, I mean, look, the president has already said that some states that have less than a thousand cases could potentially reopen today, saying that they may already be ready for phase one, uh, while other states like New York will remain closed likely for much longer because they're such a hot spot right now. But that opens up the question as to what happens if a state reopens and people start milling about and crossing state lines. Mm -hmm. Do you potentially run the risk for a surge in cases down the road? And then what happens to your phased plan after that? Right. Okay. So he was saying that some states could actually begin the plan today, but do we even know what state might be close to this? Well, we know that there are some states that have significantly lower rates than other states. Wyoming has less than 300 cases. Uh, Alaska and Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, they're all under a thousand cases right now. But the thing that's missing from this phased approach or this phased uh, list of guidelines is broad-based testing. It is not recommended across anywhere in the country. It is not going to be a national strategy to put forward, despite the fact state governors uh, are saying, look, we need more testing if we want to reopen. Testing is not going to be a requirement uh, realistically for any of these phases, and we don't know if the numbers are underreported in these low-level states uh, because testing has been such an issue and has been so inadequate across the country. Because even in Wyoming, you mentioned there, they finally recorded their first death this week. Uh, they, they seem like they're just starting on this. 
Yeah, and I mean, look, some of these states, you know, a state like Montana only has a million people throughout the entire state, so you don't have big clustered uh, uh, cities with high density and an opportunity for this virus to spread. It's the same in Wyoming. The issue is, uh, was testing done at a low level in these sparsely populated states, therefore underestimating or underreporting or allowing silent outbreaks continue to roll on? And that's where the health experts right now are saying, look, this could be botched. We could have issues down the line that we're going to have to claw things back, but that's going to be a fight between state governors and the president if we run into that kind of situation. Right. And California seems to have talked about doing this, right? Like, aren't they approaching the time when they might be thinking about easing some of this? Well, California is potentially going to ease things, but Governor Gavin Newsom has been very strict about saying, look, this is not going to be simple. This is not going to be easy if and when we're able to return to normal, which could be a year from now. Uh, he's talking about, uh, you know, altering the way that things operate, like fewer tables in restaurants, having uh, servers wear masks. You know, if you're going to a movie theater, you may have to be wearing masks and gloves in order mm. to, to uh, protect people. So it's going to be a phased in approach state by state, but then each state you know, depending on how hard they've been hit, is really going to have to work to see how they can mitigate the spread. Right. All right, Reggie, thank you so much. Thank you. That is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, talking about uh, the United States, where it really is a bit of a um, potpourri, let's say, of where states are at this point. Some of them, like California, have started to think about the ways in which they are going to lift this lockdown. Uh, California also, though, is, is a bit farther along on this curve than other states are. In, in New York, they're still, you know, right seemingly in the middle of it, although their numbers seem to be leveling off. On some states, as we mentioned, Wyoming, they're just hearing about their first deaths this week. In fact, I was reading a story this morning, I think it was in the Washington Post, about Wyoming, where uh, a healthcare worker, get this, a healthcare worker who worked at a healthcare institution had a co-worker who tested positive for COVID-19. They took the test while they were waiting for the test results, went to a party on a Friday night. Test came back Monday, positive. That's the kind of stuff they're dealing with in Wyoming right now, too. This is Mornings with Simi. The type of cuts that, that we're talking about are going to be massive and going to hit every part of the, the organization at TransLink. Ouch. That is the chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council, New Westminster Mayor Jonathan Cote. He spoke with us on Tuesday when we were first made aware of just how dire the situation is that TransLink finds itself in. They're certainly not the only organization and company that uh, finds themselves in those straits, but this one affects a lot of people, not just in terms of jobs, but in terms of the services that the people out there who are still working might just be relying on. Now, Unifor is worried about job cuts as a result of what's happening at TransLink. So to talk more about that, we're joined now by Gavin McGarrigal, who is the Unifor Western Regional Director. Good morning, Gavin. Thank you for being here. Yeah, good morning, Timmy. What have you been told in terms of the impact on employees? Well, they've uh, contacted us and given us a range of options that they're looking at. But, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the options I heard was cuts as high as 70%. Uh, you know, any cuts make no sense at all right now. But um, you know, when they're talking massive cuts, they are they are talking uh, uh, really, really significant cuts. And, and again, we're trying to get the word out there that it makes no sense. Okay, so what is the process like for this? So they're giving you a range, but how do you know what what's going to actually happen? 
Well, we're in discussions with the employer. Um, you know, we've we've made the point to to uh, to them that it doesn't make sense. We've made the point to provincial officials it doesn't make sense, and we're asking them to sort it out. So, under the collective agreement, they would have to give us a specific amount of notice, uh, which would then trigger discussions on uh, bumping uh, where people go in different depots. Uh, it would just be complete chaos across the entire system. It's, a, it's a, an extremely rare event. Uh, that you talk about any layoffs at all, and it's completely unprecedented to talk about layoffs of this magnitude in, in, a, in a transit system. Is How would you even uh, approach this? Like in terms of the bumping you talked about there, what would be the process for callbacks, uh, getting people back to work? Like isn't that a huge mountain of things to negotiate? It would be a complete mess, you know, and, and in addition to the strain on our membership and the, and the disorganization and how far back it would set transit, you know, we think about the 75,000 people that are trying to get to work every day. We think about people, the essential workers that are, you know, going to grocery stores, that are going to, uh, you know, healthcare facilities, uh, uh, cleaners and things like that. A lot of, a lot of uh, low-wage uh, essential workers are, are women and, and workers of color, and they're going to be uh, disproportionately affected. So, you know, people won't be able to get to work, and, uh, and we need uh, certain people to get to work. Um, so it would just be complete uh, disaster. Okay, so Gavin, though, what is the alternative? Because obviously they cannot continue the way they're going because of the amount of money that they're losing. Well, I mean, I think you could take that statement to anyone, to any level of government, to any country in the entire world right now. I mean, the reality is no one has been here before, at least in the last hundred years. Uh, nobody knows what the exact answer is. And as you see, governments are stepping up at every level. The, the Horgan government, uh, you know, compared to some other provinces, has, has made some steps in the right direction. Uh, but people are just, you know, I mean, you if I had asked you three weeks ago, Simi, did you think that the federal government would be cutting $2,000 uh, checks? to people with three questions asked and you would have told me I was crazy. So, you know, we're in completely uncharted waters. Um, the, the weird funding uh, mechanism that is TransLink is, is almost unprecedented in Canada and, you know, we're not going to be a guinea pig and we don't think the citizens of the region should be a guinea pig because of this uh, weird beast of TransLink and how they fund it. Um, we're not necessarily seeing this from, from other uh, transit agencies. Everybody is under pressure. But the reality is essential services um, you know, the workers that need to get to those essential services have to continue to function. Uh, we've tried to work with the employer. We've worked on rear, you know, uh, rear uh, door boarding. Uh, we, we've worked to see seats on the uh, paper on the buses, but there's no extra security. People are getting into, into arguments with each other at the lineups because when they see buses that are only a third full going by and they pass them up two and three times, obviously there's a lot of tension to get on the bus. And then when they get on the bus, the driver is alone. Uh, so they're driving the bus, trying to make sure everyone's safe. And meanwhile, people are, you know, ripping off um, uh, the signs and just kind of not observing social distancing. So from our perspective, if anything, you need more people on the ground to make sure that, that the social distancing is maintained for the safety of the passengers and the drivers. So are drivers, are, are they fully staffed right now? Or is the system still running as it normally does? As you say, you can't fit as many people on a bus, so you still need quite a few buses. Well, that's just it. And, yeah, the system is uh, still uh, all of our members are working. Um, you know, in some cases there's been some small uh, redeployments here and there and, and some different mechanisms, but all of our members are, are standing by working. Um, you know, the thing changes every day. Um, so you, you do need the buses on the road. Some of the buses, Simi, also aren't really appropriate for the rear door boarding, so some buses have had to be taken off the road because they just don't work, which, again, means you need every other available bus out there uh, to make sure that you, you maintain that service. So what kind 
kind of protection is there then for bus drivers and how are bus drivers feeling? Well, bus drivers are like anyone else. They have families, they have uh, bills to pay, and they are, they're concerned. They're also struck by a tremendous sense of, of public service. Uh, they want uh, to make sure that people get to where they're going. They see these people every day. Uh, but they're concerned about their safety. I mean, our safety committees and our, our local union leadership, um, you know, are working every day uh, to try to make sure things are safe. They've put in place procedures. They've put in place um, you know, uh, uh, sanitary, um, you know, wipes and things like that. They're having the same problem that uh, everyone else is having in terms of getting enough, um, you know, uh, cleaners and and uh, and uh, PPE for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're working with them, so people are uh, definitely concerned. We've seen uh, a few, a very small number, but a few, unfortunately, uh, workers from um, Coast Mountain Bus Company uh, contract uh, COVID. So, so they're very concerned. So they want to make sure that they can do their job. They want to make sure they can do it safely for themselves, but they also care about the passengers as well. And, and when they're seeing people moving around, you know, in the backs of buses, it causes them great concern. And, and also, you know, Simi, as, as everyone is saying, the, the, the message is so important right now. If you don't need to be out there, don't go out there. Um, if you need to go out, you know, people are trying to help you get your essential services, but if you don't need to, don't go out. So that helps as well. But our members, I would say, are very concerned, uh, but also very determined to try to continue to serve the public as best they can. So then, Gavin, what is your message today? Do you, do you want the provincial government to bail TransLink out, keep it running? Well, I think it's a responsibility on all senior levels of government to sort this out. I don't think the public has any time or patience right now for people trying to talk about budgets and deficits and and uh, which level of government pays for what. Uh, as we've seen, things can change uh, uh, on a daily basis. It needs to change. We know that discussions have been going on with the federal government, uh, with the provincial government, uh, and with TransLink, and, and they need to speed it up and get it done and get this threat of, of massive layoffs off the table immediately. Uh, people have enough to worry about. Uh, the essential workers who are trying to get to work are worried about their own safety. Uh, you know, people who are sitting at home, uh, you know, are also worried, and, and drivers are worried. So we don't need this added burden uh, just because of the weird funding nature that is TransLink. They need to sit down, uh, sort it out, and get it done yesterday. All right, Gavin, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks again, Simi. That is Gavin McGarrigal, the Unifor Western Regional Director, saying that topic, talking about layoffs at TransLink, he said, is not the way to go. And he, all the bus drivers, all the people who work there, he said, it's already tough enough as it is. Uh, and they wonder how you can continue to protect the employees if they are going to be, you know, cramming more people onto buses if you reduce service and do all that. But anyway, if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. There'll be more to come on that story for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's check in with Nikki Reitmeyer this morning and find out what she's working on. And I know it is yet another very interesting story about the times that we find ourselves in. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. A little bit later on this morning, we're going to hear from Blair Wilson, who was the distillery owner up in the Okanagan. Maybe you remember we talked about this story a little bit earlier in the week. And why this story stands out in my mind is because, like many distilleries, they decided that they were going to convert their alcohol making process into a hand sanitizer and then offer that for free to the public. Uh, Great, a wonderful thing to do, except there was such high demand. Fist fights broke out in the lineup to get the hand sanitizer. The RCMP had to be called. It was a bit crazy and they're going to try it again this weekend. So we'll catch up with him later in the show to uh, (laughs) to try to get to the (laughs) bottom of how that could possibly change. Uh, In the meanwhile, I want to talk to you about the Port Moody, uh, the Port Moody Station Museum 
They want your help collecting information from this moment in history. And I think it seems a bit strange to think that we are are literally living history right now. I spoke to Marcus Farner, who's the curator at the museum, and he said, you know, believe it or not, this moment, this is history. I think right now museums probably around the world are very aware that we need to chronicle this. You know, we are we're literally in a state where we are making history right at this moment and it needs to be, you know, chronicled from everyone, not just sort of, you know, the official sources, the government sources, and, and later on maybe people writing history, but like, you know, like from, well, you and me. True. I think we forget about that sometimes, right? You're just so concerned with getting through every day that years from now we would look back and, and think about that, like what that was like in that moment. Yeah, and I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, I wonder, you know, when we look back on this moment or when our kids look back or our grandkids look back on this moment, you know, what will they think of it and how will things have changed? And you do hear people kind of casually saying, geez, this is a moment in history. But when you really step back and think about it, I mean, this will be something that people talk about for, for hundreds of years and we're living it right now. It, it seems a bit wild, a wild to think about. And he, he is looking for donations from the public, not necessarily monetary donations, but donations of your items like journals, Hmm. uh, photographs you've taken. And I think for a lot of people, you know, especially if you remember taking high school when you were um, history in high school, you're thinking, well, what value are my journal entries when we when we chronicle history? But there is a lot of value in those primary sources. Textbooks are important as a secondary source, but primary sources like your journal entries are really they help us develop a really well-rounded understanding of what history is and marcus explained that a bit as well people think sort of history is just you know like the stuff they find in our museum's collection they find in a book and they're not aware or like in your day-to-day life you're not aware that you are living through history of course right now we're living through I guess more history or a bit more scary history than usual but it kind of is this very present moment and I think the importance here is to collect voices from everyone I mean who decides what history is you know when we look back when you write a, a book decisions are made. I mean, it's never really just, you know, like that one truth that sort of shines out. People pick certain things they like to hear and to represent. Now, by having primary sources, we can kind of, we're in a unique position right now to collect these letters, thoughts, conversations you have with your children um, that really give sort of an image of what people are feeling right in this moment. And there isn't so much of a question of right or wrong or something in history. This is what you as a person felt during this moment. And I think that's just actually really a beautiful opportunity for a museum to collect this and and take this into our collection. Well, later on and many years later, you know, people can go in and read these original thoughts of people that went through those times and it will give them an amazing picture of what it was like right now to be going through those days. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me, that we do need to have those sources. Yeah, so if you want to drop off, uh, you know, in the future when this pandemic is over or send them uh, any any of the journal entries that you have or items that you have, you can go to the Port Moody Museum website, which is portmoodymuseum.org, and get in touch with them that way. But yeah, I mean, if you think about it, whether it's uh, journal entries that you're doing with your kids, photographs that you're taking, and you talked about some beautiful photographs people can be taking right now that are, right. are just 
so almost dystopian yeah, that so. they they, sh- they shock you in theme a little bit. So yeah, there's there's lots of opportunities to to chronicle history right now. So what are they looking for? Right, so they're looking for uh, journal entries. And he said, sit down with your kids. He said, once a day, maybe you sit down with the kids at the coffee table uh, or the kitchen table and say, let's write in our diaries for 10 minutes about what it was like to live today as a you know 13-year-old kid in in Surrey, BC. What was it like to live in this moment? And, and you can chronicle that yourself. He said, photographs they're looking for. He said, do you, you remember the flyer that came in the mail from the government that was a, you know, right. a heads up on what we should be doing, you know, wash your hands, blah, blah, blah. He said that when he got that in the mail, he kept it and thought, this is the perfect item huh. to add to a museum. So anything like that. Okay. And so you just contact the Port Moody Museum for more information? Yeah. PortMoodyMuseum.org is the website. Sounds good. That's so great. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, socializing has really taken on new meaning and whole new forms in this COVID-19 situation. I have a pretty close and large extended family that is used to getting together all the time. That has not happened uh, since we were asked to start physical distancing from each other. We do some Zoom meetings. There's more texting going on. I got invited to my nephew's birthday parade next week, which is when you stay in your car and you drive by the house and honk your horn and wave. Yep, got invited to my first one of those. So we're finding new ways to do this. But where's the line? Are some people going perhaps over that. Well, trying to find the line can be quite difficult. We're joined now by Global News lifestyle reporter Megan Colley, who has been researching this. Good morning, Megan. Hi, how's it going? Good, thank you. So people are trying really hard to stay connected, but how do you know when perhaps you're going too far? Yeah, so one of the things everyone is stressing right now, public health officials, doctors, every expert I've spoken to about this topic is really stressing that physical distancing is key here. And we know that physical distancing means at least six feet of distance between you and any other person. So if you can have, you know, a driveway party, I don't know if you've seen this in your neighborhood, but I've seen it in mine where people are, you know, down on the street sort of waving and talking, yelling over to their neighbors, um, and you're keeping at least six feet between you and another person, then um, experts are saying then that is okay. Mm -hmm. But one thing we should all keep in mind is that Um, You know, there's new data emerging now that if somebody has a cough, let's say six feet might not be uh, far enough to protect us from their germs. So for anybody with symptoms um, similar to coronavirus or not, uh, this does not apply to them. You need to stay inside. But if you don't have symptoms and your neighbor doesn't have symptoms and you want to, you know, set a a chair down at the bottom of your driveway, then um, keeping six feet at all times, then that's okay. Okay, but what about bike rides? Because this is probably the most common form of socializing that I have seen in the last little while. And it seems like a lot of people are too close. Yeah, so one thing about travel, so walking or biking, it can get really difficult to multitask and have a conversation or, you know, focus on your bike and also remember, oh, six feet at all times. So this is one sort of gray area where experts are saying, "Mm, maybe that's not the best decision for for spending your free time with others. Uh, You know, if you're with people in your house, then that's okay. But with people from other houses, they're saying, let's avoid the walking and and the biking because it can get really tricky to maintain that distance at all times. Right. I guess it's a lot to ask, especially when the weather has been as good as it has been out here. 
Exactly. Yeah. So this is one thing that experts are starting to get a little bit worried about, I think, as the sun starts to warm up and people spend more time outside. Um, you know, it's great for your mental health, it's great for your physical health, but uh, we do need to keep maintaining that distance because as we're seeing now, you know, it's having positive effects. So really just making sure that you're maintaining that six feet at all times. Yeah. Do you think we underestimate what six feet actually is? Like I see people and I'm like, oh, that doesn't look like six feet. Totally. Yeah. I've seen tons of funny sort of memes online where it's like, it's like, uh, six Dorito bags. That's my favorite one. Six Dorito bags end to end. That's how I always visualize it. It's way farther than you think it is. So if you think you're at six feet, I would say take two steps back even further just to keep yourself as safe as possible. It's hard to keep reminding people of this, isn't it though, Megan? Cause I know it feels probably for people like they're being hit over the head with this. Uh, but it's important, right, to keep that message going. It's so important, especially, as you say, with the better weather. And two, you know, I don't know about you, but I've been working from home for five weeks now, and I'm really starting to feel the mental health impacts of this um, self-isolation. It can be really difficult not to see your friends or even just your neighbors have those small talk conversations. I don't think we, we realized before this whole thing started how much importance those held in our everyday life so I think people are itching for that social connection but yeah there are proper ways to do it so just being as diligent as possible and and keeping that six feet at all times all right Megan thanks very much for the reminder thanks so much Megan Collier Global News Lifestyle Reporter Uh, that reminder about physical distancing we tend to forget that people want to socialize and hey who of course you want to socialize as Megan was saying she's it's getting to her working from home for four or five weeks now but remember you're probably underestimating what that six feet actually looks like and take a couple of extra steps uh, as Megan pointed out there if you want to weigh in Simi at cknw.com this is mornings with Simi Let's talk about your car insurance, because right now, I think most of us are trying to figure out ways to save as much money as possible. And if you're not driving as much or at all, for that matter, then you're wondering, well, why am I paying the same for car insurance? You want to do something about that. Well, there are some changes to tell you about. For more on that, we're joined now by the minister responsible for ICBC, David Eby. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning. Okay, so what is it that you announced yesterday, the relief for people? Well, there are a number of people who maybe they have two vehicles and they're only using one or maybe they're not using their vehicle at all. They're leaving it at home or they really dramatically changed the use of their vehicle. They used to use it for business and now they only use it personally or they're driving less than 5,000 kilometers. So uh, previously, if you uh, needed to change your insurance, there was a a change fee uh, and uh, if you needed to stop your insurance entirely, uh, it it added up to about 50 bucks to cancel and then restart. As well, you had to uh, take your plates in, uh, and then you would be issued new plates when you restarted your insurance. So yesterday, uh, we announced that those fees uh, are removed, so you can uh, take the insurance off of a vehicle uh, without any charge and restart without any charge. And if you restart your insurance after May 30th, that's when the system changes will be done, you'll actually be able to use your existing plates, uh, which is... uh, going to be a time saver and uh, just far more efficient given the number of people who are likely going to have to cancel their insurance. Is there any charge then for people who want to downgrade their insurance from to and from commuting to perhaps just pleasure? No, there's no charge. And and people should, uh, if they have changed their use, use, they should call an insurance broker and and talk it through with them. We have uh, more affordable products for people who drive fewer than 5,000 kilometers 
if you're not using your vehicle for a commute anymore that you used to use it for, you could change your insurance for that as well. And uh, and so it's, it's worth having that conversation. Now, can you make this retroactive for people? I know I got some emails from people saying, listen, I did this last week and I got charged $30 to cancel coverage. What about those people? Yeah, unfortunately, um, it's not retroactive. It's on a go-forward basis. We're still looking at what we can do about people who uh, canceled their insurance already. Um, and in addition, we're also looking at the overall uh, issue on the roads of significantly reduced traffic. And by extension, uh, we believe uh, significantly reduced accidents. ICBC will be providing us with a report in the coming weeks about all of the COVID impacts on their business, both good and bad. Uh, they've lost a huge amount of money in their investments, like many British Columbians. Uh, but also, obviously, there are uh, significantly fewer collisions, at least obviously to me. Right. Uh, so that report will come to government about the financial impacts and government will be able to make further decisions at that point. Is the door then still slightly open to the idea of providing rebates to people? Um, I don't want to uh, speculate about what actions government could take. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, the financial impacts of COVID on the corporation. And the goal always is to uh, provide as much relief to British Columbians during these times as we can. So that will certainly be one of the things that will be considered is if, if there is a significant reduction uh, in accidents and ICBC is looking at a significant surplus, how do we use that to provide relief to British Columbians? Um, and, uh, and we'll wait for that report to see. Okay, so and how many do we know how many people have canceled their insurance at this point or, or made changes? Yeah, there have been uh, thousands of people who have taken advantage of the, the initial uh, relief that was offered, which is you can uh, uh, delay paying on your uh, insurance for 90 days uh, and not have to pay on your insurance uh, during that period if you still need your vehicle, but you find yourself short of cash because you've been laid off or your business is closed. Um, and uh, and we expect, and there have been thousands of people who have canceled their insurance as well. It's uh, it's hard to separate uh, some of that activity from just typical uh, activity, but obviously strongly influenced by COVID. So we don't know exactly how many of those people have canceled because of COVID. I expect with this announcement today, uh, there will be many more people who cancel their insurance uh, on at least one vehicle uh, if they have two vehicles or uh, or on their main vehicle simply because they've been laid off. Looking at the numbers out of hospitality and tourism, for example, uh, that you were just reporting on. Right. Okay. So getting people back on the road eventually, right, when things do start to hopefully improve in a few months, then will there be people who still have to deal with deferred payments? And that could be a bit of a financial, you know, bill for the, waiting for them down the road. Yeah, just because you're deferring the payments doesn't mean the payments go away. So at the end of the 90 days, you still would owe that insurance money to ICBC. So uh, for people who have difficulty paying at the end of the 90 days, um, and it is currently 90 days. I mean, obviously, we don't know how long these restrictions are going to be in place. But at the end of the 90 days, you can call ICBC and arrange a repayment schedule for those 90 days while your insurance was on hold. It, you don't have to pay the entire amount on day 91. Okay, so you're still waiting then, Mr. Eby, for the report from ICBC, because it sounds like with all the cancellations, there's also going to be a financial hit. Yeah, there's good news and bad news for, for ICBC. Uh, the, the good news is obviously reduced traffic and reduced collisions, uh, and that is the biggest expense associated with car insurance. When people have accidents, they need repairs or they make claims related to injuries. Uh, and uh, the, there is certainly bad news. I mean, when people are canceling their insurance and, uh, and when their ICBC's investments that help subsidize rates uh, dr- drop dramatically in value and when ICBC has one-time expenses to operate during the crisis, uh, those have impacts too. So we want to see it all together. We're obviously being cautious with ICBC's finances for obvious reasons. And, uh, and it, we're hopeful, uh, that things are, there's more good than bad for ICBC as silver lining in this really tragic situation for so many British Columbians. 
uh, and uh, and we'll be getting that report to see what can be done. All right, we'll talk to you then. Thanks for your time. You bet. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, one thing we have definitely seen from definitely the provincial and federal levels of government in the last few weeks is the the constant tweaking that they're doing to change things. Because every day brings something new. They introduce a program, they roll something out, and next thing you know, people are saying, "Well, wait a minute, that doesn't. What about these people? And that doesn't that doesn't reach these people." And so they're tweaking things all the time. Well, there is another group that is hoping they do more on that front because as more time goes by, we do learn that there are groups. That are not necessarily able to benefit from that Canada emergency response benefit. And probably the, the largest group of those are post-secondary students. There's a new survey that has been conducted by the undergraduates of the Canadian Research Intensive Universities right across Canada. And they talked to more than 3,000 students across the country. So let's find out what the concerns are of those students. So joining us now, Christina Ilnici, who's Vice President of External Affairs with the UBC Alma Mater Society. Christina, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Simi. Well, this is a pretty big survey. So tell me, what is it? What kind of, what kind of sense did you want to get from the students that you were talking to? Yeah, so we've been listening to students and advocating at our local institutions and all level of government um, on students' behalf since the COVID crisis began in March. Um, And a lot of what we were getting back um, is not really quite having an understanding of what students' lived experiences were um, during this time and what challenges that they were facing. So we wanted to gather stories straight from students um, about some of those hardships. Um, So we surveyed post-secondary students from coast to coast, received over 3,000 responses. um, And we found that many students are in immediate need of financial support and are being missed by existing government support programs. Okay, and so what are they worried about as well? I would imagine, like, I've got a university student in my family worried about whether or not school's even going to start in September. Yeah, so some of the the biggest numbers that we have, um, around 83% of students who responded to our survey indicated that they are not eligible for the CERB based on those uh, eligibility criteria that came out on March 25th. Um, And uh, high numbers we're seeing around the 70s of students are worried about meeting those immediate financial obligations like paying for rent, utilities, groceries, basic living costs. Um, And more so than that, we're seeing around 80% of students are worried about paying tuition for for the fall. So it's not just about those immediate kind of basic needs right now. They're also worried about even the possibility of being able to return back to school. Right, because their summer jobs aren't there. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that we kind of recognize that as a student, students have a lot of financial precarity, and one of the main reasons um, for that is because we rely on seasonal work. Students um, rely on kind of a number of ways to to get funded during their degree, whether that's student financial aid, working uh, summer jobs, um, maybe some familial support, all in combination to be able to survive during the school year. So does that mean, do you think, Christina, we'll see more requests for student loans in the fall if the universities are back up and running? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, one, of the, one of the pieces that we've been asking for, um, other than kind of that immediate um, financial support, is also looking at some longer-term support around increasing Canada student grants. We know that no matter how much um, support is given to students right now, um, because students are having a hard time finding work this summer and are probably not going to make um, as much as they were expecting to, they're going to be struggling in the school year. Okay, so then they must be also quite scared about even continuing school at this point. 
yeah, it's it's a tough time. I know myself, I've switched to online classes and, you know, I'm lucky that I, I have a roof over my head and I, I'm able to afford groceries at this point. But I'm getting a lot of emails um, from students at my school that are having a hard time trying to find um, enough money to pay for rent. They're worried about May. They're worried about you know, having enough uh, money to pay for basic living necessities. So um, we're definitely worried about students at this point. And so was that something that you saw in the polling right across the country? Yes. From province to province, that was not different. So do you think you will hear something from the federal government? They keep saying they know they have to help post-secondary students, but what kind of help is there right now? Yeah. So this report just went live um, yesterday. Um, however, we've been having conversations with uh, federal government, with um, other student advocates um, across the country um, for the past couple of weeks um, to, to get a sense of where everybody's at, what's in, what's in the pipeline for students. Um, and from government, we've heard that something is coming um, soon and that there is support coming soon. But, you know, we have been pressing for this for a number of weeks and we're worried about those students who can't wait that much longer. Students who come May will be struggling and will not have the finances uh, to support their basic living necessities. And what about finding jobs? Because, you know, there are some areas that are hiring. Have students tried that as well? Yeah. So uh, students are definitely going out and and looking for jobs, and especially in those essential service jobs. But not all students um, can take those jobs. We know of a number um, of students from that survey that are in a tough situation where they had to um, voluntarily leave their jobs um, due to COVID um, because they live with immunocompromised people in their family. Um, and that's really tough because not only are they now not eligible for CERB, they also aren't uh, finding jobs. And, you know, we were really excited to hear that uh, announcement from the government that they were expanding the Canada Summer Jobs Program. But ultimately, that only offers opportunities to around 70,000 jobs, leaving 2.1 million students unaccounted for. Ooh, okay, so there's a long list here, and you're hoping to hear something then soon? Yes, very soon. All right, Christina, thank you. Awesome, thank you so much. That is Christina Elnichi, who's the Vice President of External Affairs with the UBC Alma Mater Society, talking about this survey that they conducted. They polled 3,000 students right across the country, uh, conducted by undergraduates of Canadian research-intensive universities, and they found that there's a lot of kind of similarity about the concerns out there that these students have. They, A lot of them fall between the cracks. They're not eligible for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. They don't qualify for EI. Uh, and seven of the people they surveyed uh, are worried about whether or not they're even going to be able to pay their tuition in the fall. If they don't have a job they can work out this summer or get some money or pull something together, 73% even said they're concerned about paying their rent through the summer months. Uh, Those summer jobs that they were counting on, of course, have either in doubt or they have been cancelled completely. Uh, And There's a real scramble for the jobs that are left behind, as Christina pointed out. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for a couple of good news story, I think, to wind up our week here. We know that Scouts Canada is just a great organization. And if you're looking for ways to keep your kids busy this weekend, they have a ton of great activities listed on their website. Activities, by the way, that also respect physical distancing measures. So don't worry about that. We wanted to highlight, though, one local scout who has found an activity that is keeping him busy 
and is also helping our frontline healthcare workers right now. How can you do those two things? Let's find out. We're going to learn right now with the help of Heather and her son, Quinn, who join us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. First off, Quinn, how old are you? Twelve. You're 12 years old. All right. So how did you come up with this idea? Well, my mother was tagged in post by a friend on Facebook, and it was made by a nurse who was showing something quite similar to what we have and asking if anyone wanted to make them. So I headed downstairs and printed out a few prototypes from a website, and I we had a friend who's also a nurse test them out to see which one she preferred, and then we eventually got what we have now. So you're essentially, you're printing, you're using your 3D printer to make components for protective masks for frontline workers. Is that right? Yes. Well, that must feel pretty good. How many have you done so far, Quinn? We've done around uh, five to 600 at the moment. Five to 600. That's pretty good. Heather, tell me, how surprised were you this, or does this sound like something that Quinn would just normally come up with? This is something that Quinn would normally be doing. Yes, he's definitely uh, somebody that likes to help. And he's in love with his 3D printer, so he loves to find any excuse to be able to use it. And so how have you been delivering uh, the components then, Quinn? How does that work? Well, to anyone in our local area, we'll just have them drive out to our house, most likely. And we have a contact-free pickup area on our front porch. Otherwise... Anyone else that we can't really reach easily, we'll just mail it to. So, Quinn, how does this feel for you to be involved? Like, did you feel like you needed to do something? I felt like there was definitely something that had to be done. And before long, somebody would have to step up and try and help the people who have been working with us. Heather, what's it been like for you then? Kind of, what's the community reaction been like? It's it's bigger than just the community. Uh, at this point, the original post has been shared more than four hundred and sixty three thousand times worldwide. So we have had requests from all over the world, um, especially North America. And the greatest thing that has come out of this is the thousands of volunteers that have now signed up to also make the ear guards and to donate them to their local hospitals and medical professionals. It's incredibly heartwarming to read the letters that people are sending, the pictures of other people that are are donating the items as well, and just to hear from the healthcare professionals that now can focus on their patients, not the pain that they're feeling that the masks cause on the back of their ears. Wow, so Heather, this must be kind of overwhelming, though, because all of a sudden you're getting letters and emails and Facebook posts from people, it sounds like, from all over the world. It, it can be overwhelming, but it, it's it's a great thing to be spending our time at home isolating and doing, answering messages, uh, running to the mailbox, also getting to know people from the U.S., the U.K. that are helping, and we're all trying to do our best to take care of the requests that are coming in. It's also been incredible to hear from different manufacturers, uh, mostly in the U.S. right now, that have stepped up and have repurposed their equipment to do injection mold of this item and are printing them by the thousands and donating. We've got a manufacturer that's going to be shipping us 10,000 
units for free that we can distribute across Canada. So that is incredibly heartwarming. And my husband and I are incredibly proud of Quinn and what he has done and incredibly proud of the thousands of volunteers that are also doing the same thing. Oh, no doubt. It sounds amazing. Now, Quinn, what is your message to other people? Well, if you can't think of something that you can do to help people, even if it's extremely small and you don't think it will mean anything in the bigger picture, just try your best to accomplish that. Well, you are certainly doing that. Listen, thanks to both of you for joining us today and good luck. Keep working hard, Quinn. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. All right. Good luck. That is Heather Roney and her son, Quinn Callender. Quinn's a member of Scouts Canada, by the way. And he is using his 3D printer, as you heard, to help print out components for protective masks for healthcare workers. Uh, and he's done about five or 600 so far. And he wanted to make sure that everybody knows that, you know what, you can participate in any way, shape or form. Just make sure that you do. Thank you for that, Quinn, and for the great job that you're doing. This is Mornings with Simi. You may have heard of the Conquer COVID-19 movement. It's been happening right now, right across the country, kind of spearheaded uh, by Haley Wickenheiser and Ryan Reynolds. They are both ambassadors for this project. So what it is all about is it's raising money and collecting personal protective equipment for frontline workers. Well, Tony Scott is the CEO of the Platinum Proclaim Restoration Service in Richmond. And that's one of the locations people are being encouraged to go to with any donations donations that you may have. So we thought we'd check in with Tony this morning. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell me, Tony, how did you get involved in this? Um, we've uh, worked with Haley Wickenheiser in the past uh, on her hockey tournament, uh, bringing a team uh, of uh, girls from India to play in her tournament. So uh, when she got involved in this, she asked if we would join in with them and, and do stuff out in the West. Mostly what's happened so far has been in Ontario. So we, uh, we wanted to uh, help out here, so we're doing that here, uh, Vancouver, Victoria, and Calgary. Okay, so you're trying to ramp up the message then for the West Coast. Yeah, it's uh, sort of that idea. Everybody, we have the same problems here as we do in Ontario, so we're definitely trying to ramp it up and get that PPE in the, uh, in the hands of the people that need it. Okay, so that getting that message out there, has there been much of a reaction so far? Uh, it's been pretty good. You know, everybody really wants to help. Everybody wants to come together, and I think a lot of people aren't sure what they can do. Um, not everybody has PPE kicking around in their house, uh, but um, everybody can help in some way. Um, and uh, it's surprising, actually, how many people do have PPE kicking around, gloves and masks and uh, even uh, decontaminating wipes and that kind of thing. Right. Okay. So what kind of donations have you gotten? Have you gotten quite a bit? Uh, we've gotten mostly gloves and, uh, and masks so far. Um, we have a great need for... Uh, um, smocks that they can wear, that kind of thing. Um, so that's mostly what we've got so far. Okay, so then how are you getting the message out there for people? What's that? What do you want to tell people? Uh, the message is uh, that anything counts, uh, even if it's just uh, two or three masks or a box of five masks. Uh, uh, anything that anybody can bring in on TTE-wise would be really, really helpful. Okay, and so do they need to drop it off at your company? Yeah, we're at 13880 Mayfield Place in Vancouver, and uh, we will be there all day, 8 till 5 uh, on Saturday, receiving them and uh, making sure that we get all that stuff in. Okay, and so then how does it get distributed after, Tony? So we've got a network of people working out there to identify where the biggest needs are. So really what we're trying to look at is people who are in care facilities, uh, that type of thing, 
they seem to be the, the most needy right now. But yeah. we keep identifying the different people that need it the most, and we actually hand deliver it right to them. Oh, so we'll literally wow. take it to an emergency room parking lot. Okay, that's pretty cool then. So once again, tomorrow, 8 to 5, at what was your address again? 13880 Mayfield Place. Okay, sounds good. By the and way, you can check us out at uh, uh, www.conquercovid19.ca. All the information is there. We also have t-shirt sales. You can see Ryan Reynolds wearing the t-shirts and has a pretty funny video on Instagram. Of course he does. Um, and those <laughs> money from that, yes, yes, money from that will all go ten dollars from every shirt or more. Will go to uh, right into the cause, and we'll we'll go out and buy equipment. So that's the other thing. You can donate money, and that money will go directly to it. Uh, there's no profit in this for anybody. Every single penny, every single item goes right to uh, the people there that uh, that really need it the most. Uh, I love stories like this. Everybody kind of pitching in and doing that. How has business been for you, though, Tony? Uh, we're kind of in a different area than most people. We we do this kind of work for a living. Um, we have less work in restoring buildings and certainly the construction part of it. Um, but there's more cleaning up after COVID and that kind of thing. That's kind of how we got into this is we we know how to protect ourselves in, in around this type of thing. And we send our workers in every day to do this kind of work. But uh, there's a lot of people out there that aren't prepared for it and don't have the right equipment to do it. So we really feel for them and we understand uh, how much of a risk they're putting themselves in. And we really want to help that. We want to make sure they're as safe as possible. All right. Well, listen, good luck tomorrow. I hope you guys collect a lot of stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. That is Tony Scott. He's the CEO of Platinum Proclaim Restoration Service. Uh, they're in Richmond, 8 to 5 tomorrow. Mayfield Place. Check out conquercovid19.ca is where you can find out more information. They've got a sister company as well that's hosting a Victoria version of this. Uh, they're collecting personal protective equipment for frontline healthcare workers. They're distributing it, whether it's care homes, hospitals, emergency rooms, whatever the case may be. Uh, and I think you would be surprised by how many people might have a box of latex gloves or something lying around. You don't need it right now. Pass it on to these guys tomorrow, 8 to 5.